uh, the start of the week and a beautiful day to say goodbye to a beautiful soul. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed on your radio today. In in the history of this country, I I think her actions, particularly in terms of not signing a confidentiality agreement at that particular time and her statement outside the steps of the High Court, will live long in the memory as... as, as, um, an example of someone uh, who stood up against the system. The whole country has lost one of the most inspirational leaders that we have seen in a very, very long time. And she was inspirational because she spoke the truth and she led with sincerity. Here was a woman with terminal cancer, which didn't have to be. That's the thing. The whole thing was avoidable. She knew that and then she let us know that. And we'll start with the dark, desperate news that broke on a sunny winter's morning as Claire Byrne was interviewing on Taoiseach Michal Martin. Now, Taoiseach, I'm just getting some news here which um, has just come in to me here and um, very sad news that the cervical check campaigner Vicky Phelan has died. She died in the early hours of this morning at Milford Hospital, a hospice rather in, in Limerick. And people will know that Vicky was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 2014. As I say, this news is just coming into us and our deepest sympathies to Vicky's family and friends who are uh, hearing this news this morning. And I'm sure you'd want to say some words and, and pay tribute to Vicky Phelan yourself, Tisha. Absolutely. I think this is very, very sad news. Um, I think she was a woman of extraordinary courage. Um, and integrity, um, who stood up for the women of Ireland, but not just the women of Ireland, but I think women globally, uh, and to her family, uh, uh, to her husband and, and family in particular, we extend our deepest sympathies. Um, I think in, in, in the history of this country, I, I think her actions, particularly in terms of not signing a confidentiality agreement at that particular time and her statement on the, on, 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 outside the steps of the High Court, will live long in the memory as, 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 as um, an example of someone uh, who stood up against the system and, and, and the normal conventions of, of actions and so on to say, no, I'm not signing that. Uh, I want this revealed in, in the public interest. And she stood up for the public interest. On Taoiseach Michal Martin on hearing the news of the death of Vicky Phelan, then Tipperary Labour TD Alan Kelly spoke to Claire. And Alan, I know Vicky was a, a close friend of yours. What would you like to say about Vicky this morning? It's uh, devastating. Um, she was the most uh, incredible human being probably I've ever met. She, um, you know, my condolences to Jim, Dara, Amelia, all the feeling and Kelly families and her wide range of friends. And <clears throat> thinking particularly now uh, of Lorraine Walsh, uh, Stephen Teep, uh, John Wall. It's a, it's a very difficult morning. But the one thing that, because I've met Vicky a number of times, Alan, as you know myself, and despite everything that she was facing and all of the campaigning that she was trying to do, she was a great person to be with. She was full of fun, full of life. And the one ambition she had for herself was to live that life and what she had left of it to the full, wasn't it? Yeah, I suppose what's really shocking today is is... Vicky always fought back and she was so resilient, the most resilient person I've ever met. And I suppose in your heart of hearts, you knew this day would come, but it's still a shock because she always rebounded. Yeah. And um, so many times I was with her um, just uh, seven or eight days ago and um, I was inside with her in Limerick and uh, was with her for an hour. And, you know, we still had the crash. We still had the laugh. We talked about everything and... Um, 
you know, she her maiden name is Kelly, and as I was leaving because she was getting some treatment, uh, I'd had to leave, and uh, I just turned to her and I said, the Kellys will always be together, and I put my thumb, thumb up to her, and she smiled and put her thumb up to me as well. So mm-hmm. that was the last uh, last thing I saw of Vicky, but she, she, she had a great, she had some strength. She was amazing in in how the mo- people will never know the amount of time she gave to so many people um, that came looking for her help. I know about it because I worked with her. Um, I know her with TD and all of that, but yeah, she was a friend more than you know. It was our relationship was was friendship based, and uh, she came to the PAC that time. The famous time when she did the interview where was was in front of the with Stephen Teeth and um, actually after it, um, I I had to take her over to meet the minister Simon Harris at the time, and she actually didn't know how to get there, uh, so I brought her over and afterwards I said I'd wait and um, bring her out as well because she didn't know how, they didn't know how to get around uh, the, the government buildings and minister house. And, we were walking across the road on Marion Square side. Uh, I get in a taxi, we held on a taxi. And she, it was an involuntary thing, but it's one of the best moments of my life. She hugged me, and she said, "Won't you always do your best for us?" And that was. Labour Party TD Alan Kelly there. Then Claire spoke to Keen O'Carroll, the solicitor who represented Vicky. Now, Keen, I'm very sorry for your loss this morning because I know you very much count Vicky Phelan as, as a friend. But her bravery throughout that period, as the Taoiseach mentioned before the break, was remarkable. I mean, it caught the attention of the entire country and beyond. And we know what led on from then. That and her campaigning, as Alan Kelly told us, from from there on, she never stopped. No. Um, She never stopped. And it came from that sense that truth and honesty were the most important thing. She explained so many times how she found the evidence in her own records that there had been this discovery that there was a mistake made in her care that her, her, her smear test had been misreported and then that had been kept from her. The misreporting was, was, was the big issue. But she, she took it upon herself. She didn't accept attempts to gag her. She was determined that she was going to fight her case in court if they weren't going to deal with her reasonably and that nobody was going to hush her up on this because she knew other people were affected. And that then led on to one campaign after another, after her own case, to ensure that other people found out the truth about what had happened to them, and then that they had access to important drugs that she had to fight for access to, and then that they had a care package put together, which was going to support them and their families through effectively negligently inflicted cancers and injuries. Mm -hmm. And she fought for all that while she was fighting for her own life to extend her life so that she could give the love and support to her family and receive their love and support in return. Uh, And that's why I think people just, people warmed to her. People had a sense that she was sincere and she was honest. She was brave. uh, And truth and honesty were so important to her. 
Keen, I'm thinking back to that day in 2018 when she came out in front of the court and made the statement that she did. I'm wondering, did you know in that moment as you were going through that case with her that you were dealing with someone special? Um, I, I did know I was dealing with somebody special. Uh, you know, Alan was just telling a story there about him. I was on the street with him when when that occurred on, on Merrion Street um, uh, that day he mentioned with the Public Accounts Committee. The first day I met Vicky Phelan here in the room I'm, I'm speaking to you from now, um, and it ended with a hug. Um, and that doesn't normally happen. So she made connections with people. She radiated a warmth. Uh, a sense of humour that you you were talking about, that she was great crack. She was brilliant company to be in, the best company to be in. And no matter how sick she was, and even when I first met her back in January of 2018, um, a few months before that famous speech, that famous address she gave from the steps of the High Court, Yes. Um, uh, even then when she was so sick, she was still brilliant crack because mm-hmm. she just wouldn't... It, 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 it was in her, it came out naturally. And, and, and obviously her family, you know, Jim and Amelia and Dara, um, and her parents and her, all, all of her family, um, today is obviously about their loss. But the whole country has lost. Um, one of the most inspirational leaders that we have seen in a very, very long time. And she was inspirational because she spoke the truth and she led with sincerity. Keanu O'Carroll and Claire spoke to Dr Gabriel Scally. Vicky was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 2014 and became a prominent campaigner in subsequent years after settling her High Court case in 2018. Well, I'm joined now by Dr Gabriel Scally, author of the Cervical Check Report, which was the hugely significant piece of work instigated by Vicky Phelan's powerful call for an investigation into the entire cervical screening system. Thank you for talking to us this morning, Gabriel. What are your own thoughts this morning on hearing this news? Well, I'm sad, of course. Um, she's a great woman, and I'm very privileged to have known her and and worked with her on on the inquiry. And she was enormously helpful to me. And she has had a remarkable effect, I think. Uh, not not just you know around cervical check, but some of the things that she exposed, such as. Uh, the issue about being patients being told when something goes wrong and having a right to know when something goes wrong and and that that openness and uh the 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 demand that women in particular and we've had a whole series of scandals affecting women's health in, in ireland has really brought women's health to the fore and i think in years to come she'll be regarded as having a really seminal influence on healthcare in Ireland and changing it towards a much more patient, sensitive and respectful uh, system. And she leaves a huge legacy. You know, you've encapsulated it very well, but that is a significant legacy for one person to leave behind, isn't it? It is tremendous, but she was such such a tough woman, you know, uh, beyond belief, really. Uh, I first met her the 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 day I was appointed and uh, uh, the day after I was appointed and I I wanted to see her as soon as uh, the government had asked me to do this and she was delighted to meet me and she met me in a in a room in the hospital where she was in having uh, her her first treatment 
And uh, I couldn't believe that she was doing that in the hospital on that day, and really important day, uh, having her one of a, her first of her series of treatments she was having. And she was absolutely clear about what she uh, wanted, and, and she wanted the whole thing uh, exposed and opened up to, 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 to daylight, and for women to have a, a right to know what happened to them, and when things went wrong, to have a, an opportunity of saying, well, um, I want someone to really say they're sorry for this, to admit and tell the truth, and she's so keen on getting the truth out to people and patients having that right to truth. She was a fantastic woman. So you were left in no doubt. You said she was very tough, you know, meeting you while she was having her first treatment in the hospital. You were left in no doubt, it sounds, Gabriel, at that first meeting that you were dealing with a force of nature here. Yeah, I, I mean, that, sometimes that's a very gendered term, Claire. We always talk about, you know, women uh, being a force of nature if they happen to stand up for themselves, but she did stand up for herself and for the women of Ireland as well. And she knew that she uh, that her, her chances of surviving uh, the cancer and so on weren't great, but she gave every ounce of energy she could possibly do. And she and she wasn't afraid to tell me when she thought I was going wrong and, and, and give me advice about what I needed to concentrate on and uh, who I needed to talk to. And she was just she did so much, um, I think. And I, I, as I say, she will be regarded, I think, as someone who's made a really fundamental shift and uh, with a duty uh, to to respect that contribution and also carry on that contribution. This Thursday is World Day for the Eradication of Cervical Cancer. And that's a big day for Ireland because Ireland should now really be in the vanguard of getting rid of, of uh, cervical cancer for, for once and for all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's how she would want to be remembered. She would want to be remembered for the good that she did for the women coming after her. I mentioned earlier, you know, her energy, you know, despite everything that she was going through herself and the strength that she showed in her campaigning work. It was truly remarkable, Gabriel, I think you'd agree. Oh, it was incredible. And and her ability to remain cheery and, and, uh, uh, and, and joyful about things that were happening and good things were happening and angry about when she didn't think things were going going well was truly remarkable and uh, she didn't really let her in illness interfere with that that uh, that strength and in fact i think you know her, her 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 absolute commitment to that gave her strength and it gave her strength when she saw things shifting and things moving and uh, all the women coming forward and being told properly what happened to them and being able to to seek redress for what happened and also seeking the truth really and uh, she took I, I think she took real strength from the other women that she worked so closely with. Dr Gabriel Scally talking to Claire Byrne in the morning and we'll come back to those tributes paid to Vicky Phelan later in the programme. And in the morning, a conversation about the growing issue of human trafficking and modern-day slavery when social worker and filmmaker Sinead Colopy spoke to Ryan Tuberty about her film Every Five Miles. Yeah, it's technically a short film, um, part of the Storyland series. So there was three short films commissioned by RTE, um, RTE Drama, to try and, I suppose, highlight new voices and new writers in the country. So mine, it's kind of a trilogy, but mine is the third part of the Storyland series. Okay, so congratulations on that. Um, 
Every five miles, uh, we won't explain where that title came from just yet because it, yeah. it, 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 it just kind of alights on us at the end of the, of the, of the short. But it's, why don't you give us the kind of the, the, the nutshell version of it and what it is and we'll, we'll go back from there. How about that? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, I suppose it's about, um, it's a world that we all know. So it's a world of petrol stations. So we all go into petrol stations every day of the week. It's a very familiar world. Um, and inside in that petrol station, there's a girl, young girl called Saoirse. She's working behind the counter. I worked in a petrol station in my 20s. So it's a world we're all very familiar with. But it's, um, it's what's happening. It's the macro world and the micro world. So you're inside in a very familiar world, but there's a very dark world happening right on its doorstep that everybody's driving past, washing their cars and going in, doing their business. But little do they know that they're driving past um, a, 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 what they call is a human trafficking front, which is happening in the car wash. So the car wash is a front and then there's young men working there. And the whole story follows Saoirse, who's looking out the window of their petrol station every day. And she starts to see little things about these car washers. Lads that she'd walk past every day and thought nothing of. But she starts to kind of befriend one of them. And his name is David. And it's their relationship, really. And what happens at the end of the drama is that she figures out that this kid is not here from his own will, that there are signs that things aren't well, that he's physically not looking really well. And she has to make that call. Do I step out? and actually, you know, confront these people and do something to help him? Um, or do I say nothing and kind of turn a blind eye to protect myself? Yes. So the story kind of goes down that route. It, it, the, the conversation she has with the colleague in the garage is intriguing because I think a lot of people yeah. will have sure, you know, where are they from anyway? Lithuania or Romania? One yeah. of the Anias, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I've, I've never, you know, they all look the same to me. That sort of conversation. Yeah. Not yeah. really caring. No. But, but you, you make the point that the, the garage you pass by, but these pop-up car washes yeah. Uh, that's what this is. Yeah. Uh, why did you go there? Yeah, I suppose, like, I work in um, community development and children and family services in Tuslan about 15 years that's ago. That's your day job. That's my day okay. job. Yes, that's the day job. And 15 years ago, I was doing a piece of work for the health board at the time, and it was researching um, immigrant young people in the Midwest and their experiences. So I was out in the streets and I was out kind of working with community groups and doing interviews. And I came across a person who's living in a direct provision centre and they were saying, you know, Sinead, have you ever looked into undocumented workers? And I was like, who are they? They're like, oh, they're people that are coming into the country without any papers, but they're working here kind of under the radar. So obviously I was interested in their health. So I said, OK, and they were like, look, there's a car wash place nearby. If you want to drive past, I think there's undocumented workers there. So I just drove in pulled the car over and it was surely just it was really just to watch that there was any minors there because I was looking for kind of child protection things and they weren't they were all adults but as I was watching them I could see one lad and his hands were destroyed mm. like real sores on his hands and then I was looking at his shoes and you could see that he had these um, canvas runners and, this, and the water was soaking into them and I was like, these guys are in really poor conditions. Mm. And at the end of the car wash, I could see there was like this port cabin and there was this guy shouting at them and they looked really afraid. And I tried to hand the, the young fellow the money and he said, no, 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 go over to the port cabin. Don't give me any cash. And he had his head down. And afterwards, I said, there's something not right here. And I said it to a few people afterwards and they were like, don't go near that place. There's criminals involved in there. You know, just say nothing. You don't want to draw that trouble on yourself. I'm sure the guards know about it already. So 15 years ago, I knew nothing about human trafficking. I just mm. thought it was just a really poor workplace environment that these lads were forced to live in. Um, about two weeks later, I drove past the same place and the hand car wash had disappeared within two weeks. And afterwards, I, I, something kind of unsettling sat in my stomach. 
And I said, oh, there was more to this. There was more to this. And it wasn't until years later that I actually learned about human trafficking. that I suddenly got sick. I was like, oh, God, that lad. Mm-hmm. I think that lad wasn't there. I think he could have been one of those kids that we're reading about. Um, and I felt so guilty. I was like, why didn't I push it? What happened to him? Where is he? Yeah. And he looked me in the eye and he said something to me in a foreign language and I couldn't understand him. And even now I feel emotional even thinking about yeah. him. Um, so I said, sometime I'm, I feel really bad I didn't do anything for you. And someday um, I'm going to do you right. I'm going to write your story as kind of an apology. But also the fact that there's there's thousands and thousands of these lads out there. Um, kind of what you say, hidden in plain sight. Um, and we just walk past them every day. And we're a little complicit in... Uh, the silence maybe or the lack of curiosity lack of curiosity I think we're worried Ryan about our everyday lives we're worried about the cost of living crisis we're worried about you know how we're going to pay our electricity bills these are the things that when politicians come to our door we talk about Um, you know certain things I'm worried about Um, but you know these people are they're not in our communities they're not at our school gates they're not in our offices they're not at the GAA matches with us so they're not if they're if they're not one of us, there's no family they're advocating for them. Yes. Who is advocating for them? And they're kind of on the fringes. And maybe that's why it's not as political an issue as other things are. And Sinead spoke about the lack of awareness of labour trafficking. When it comes to labour trafficking, I suppose we hear a lot about sex trafficking in this that's country. Right, yeah, yeah. That 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 is hitting the papers. Um, you know, we've got brilliant organizations out there like Ruhama, who have yes. really done amazing work in highlighting sex trafficking and the problem here. But this is labour trafficking, and I think it's that little bit more hidden um, car washes obviously I'm not saying it's every car wash yeah, in the we'll country we'll all be very suspicious going so to the car wash now going to apologies going out to the legitimate yeah. car wash owners of, of which there are thousands of course but I know just from the UK experience as well is that you know car washes are an issue pop up nail salons um, agriculture childcare women that are applying for um, that come to your house as au pairs and if she's only charging you 10 euros a day to mind your children you kind of have to wonder, like, you know, why is she charging so low? Anything where it's cash in hand and it's a really cheap price and it's popped up overnight and it closes down really quickly. A lot of times those industries can be a front for trafficking. And where do those people go at night? And where, where do they, you know, where, where are they kept to use a, an all horrible expression yeah, for, for an yeah. object? But yeah, that's but what I mean, in like. very poor conditions, um, you know, people say that the Airbnbs, I know that um, there's a brilliant organisation out there called Mechpaths and Mechpaths train the hospitality trade. So they train hotel staff on um, if there are young girls being booked into your rooms and they're very, very young and they're there for long periods of time and you see men bringing them to and fro the bedrooms. Um, they have to actually train hotel staff about this really? because they are block booking cheap rooms as well. Um, and this isn't just an urban issue. This is very much a rural issue as well. I mean, you see there's grow houses, cannabis grow houses in the Midlands where you might have, you know, a mobile home on the land. So they rent the land, the farm land from somebody, set up your mobile home, set up your your cannabis grow house, but it's in the middle of nowhere, so there's no eyes and ears on you. Yes. So it's, you know, you can operate with immunity, impunity, really, when there's nobody looking at you. And the people that, let's say, would be working on the grow house at the, at the bottom end of the, mm. of the ladder, mm. are they the, the human traffic? Yeah. And they come, they are trafficked to Ireland to work on that, to sleep yeah. in that mobile home, and that's yeah. your life now. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a thirty billion dollar industry, human trafficking. It's it, annually. It's it's a thirty billion every year. It costs you four thousand euros to get on a boat from Calais to Dover. That's what you'll pay a trafficker, and they'll put forty people on that boat. Yeah. So there's forty people on a boat every day. Um, a multiple boats going out. So it's a huge business. Um, and it's worth it's it's worth a huge amount of money. But then your passport's taken off you. You've got to pay back that four that four four thousand euros. Your family could be threatened back home. You're illegal in a country, and they're making you do something illegal. So your hands are tied, and you can't properly speak the language. 
So it must be a very terrifying space to be in. And Ryan asked Sinead about the title of her film, Every Five Miles. Every Five Miles is the name mm. of the film. Um, and let, let's now talk about yeah. why it's called that, because yeah. that, that was really, that really threw me off um, the couch when I when I read that at the yeah. end. So maybe just yeah. tell us about that. If you yeah, would. I was um, I was writing the story and we actually had a different name for it. And uh, I was doing a lot of research for the story. So I was listening to um, kind of newsreels and things like that. And I came across um, a news talk interview with the um, Labour Relations Commissioner at the time, back in 2018, Una mm. Buckley. And I was listening and she was speaking about how her um, her workers go out and they inspect um, labour places for various different breaches of the Labour Act, but also for trafficking. And one of her workers came to her and said, you know, she said, like, how prevalent is trafficking in this country? And he said, I'm doing this for a long, long time. And he says, from what I'm seeing at the moment, he says, and this in Ireland, you're only about every five miles from someone who's been the victim of trafficking. And when I, I know it's not a statistic and it's not, you know, quantifiable or anything like that, but it was just his impression from being on the ground. But when I sat back and I said, God, every five miles, that's closer than we think. Yes. That's really close to us. Yeah. And it just really hit home how close it is. It's not an urban problem. It's not an English problem. It's in your town. It's in your village. It's, it's you know, it's every five miles. So I went back to our producers, um, uh, Colman McKenna and um, Cormac Fox, and I said, change the name. As it's every five miles. And they're like, what the hell does that mean? And I was like, yeah. listen to the radio ad. And uh, they're like, ah, yeah. Yeah, got it, it does make sense. It makes sense. It, the other statistic that was striking was the um, number of people they, they reckon mm. are slaves, slaves yeah. Yeah. in Ireland today. Yeah. And uh, what, what number, I mean, if, if, if our listeners give it five seconds to think, how many people do you think would be, we'll talk about what slavery is in, mm. in modern Ireland and the world, uh, that what number you think in your head would, would, would be there? How many thousands, hundreds of people do you think are living as slaves in this country in 2022 as we speak on this 14th of November? And the answer is? 8,000. It's phenomenal. Modern day slaves. That's the global slavery index. And they look at countries all over the world and they base it on the data that they're given. And when they looked at Ireland and the data that's that's here, they said they estimate 8,000. Um, and that's modern day slavery. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg because it's very hard to quantify the numbers because it's such a hidden crime. Mm. Um, and it's not just foreigners. People think it's a foreigner's issue. It's not. It's, you know, it's vulnerable people. It's Irish people are being trafficked every day, um, you know, picked up from homeless hostels, you know, picked up off the streets. Um, kids put on buses, being groomed online to do what we call running county lines, you know, drug trafficking on buses. Okay up and down the country really? across the border. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and, scary. And what, what does, is there, a, I mean, I know it's hard to define because it's case by case, but what mm. roughly speaking do you know, Sinead, is, uh, constitutes slavery? It's Yeah, it's where you take away somebody's personal freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. So when you have basically restricted and taken away somebody's liberty that they cannot physically move um, and you have enslaved them, and these people are modern day slaves because they're intimidated. Violence is being used, threats, intimidation. They take away their passports so you can't physically move their ID so you can't ID yourself. Um, and you're basically at their mercy. Um, and that's what a modern day slave is. Which if you if you have slavery, you have slave traders. Yeah. Uh, just like the old movies you might watch, mm. you know, 12 Years a Slave or Django Unchained or whatever, yeah. what we associate with slavery. Yeah. Uh, but it never really went away, clearly. It just evolved. It, yeah, it evolved. It went online. It's anywhere where you have vulnerable people, anywhere where you have people that are going to be exploited. And that's why even with the crisis in Ukraine, 
we were really, really concerned. I know that Tusla have had an increase in children um, presenting on, on unaccompanied minors into the country. And it's been in the media that we've had three times the number of unaccompanied minors arrive in our country. Um, we're very worried about child trafficking. We're very worried about trafficking in general, especially since Brexit. So now when you have Ireland, when people were trying to get to the UK, and now the port's obviously getting in and out of the UK, it's harder to get in and out from mainland Europe. So you just circumnavigate the UK, you land into Irish ports, you go up across their border and you can get a boat across to, to Scotland. Um, so Ireland, is it going to be a safe haven? I know that the Brexit negotiations, it was definitely one of the PSNI's concerns was human trafficking across a soft border. Um, so we are that gateway into the UK from mainland Europe. Sinead Colopy on The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on the news at one, tributes for Vicky Phelan. There have been many tributes today to the cervical check campaigner Vicky Phelan, who has died at the age of 48. Diagnosed with cervical cancer in 2014, Vicky later discovered that a smear test she'd taken in 2011 showing no abnormalities was wrong. In 2018, she settled a High Court action without admission of liability, but refused to sign a confidentiality agreement in order to speak publicly about the case. President Michael D. Higgins said all those who had the privilege of meeting Vicky were struck by her powerful inner strength and dignity and by her commitment to the public good and the rights of others. Fellow campaigner Stephen Teep, whose wife Irene died from the disease, said it was with a broken heart that he said goodbye to a great friend who honoured us with her wisdom, love and great sense of humour. We'll be hearing from one of Vicky's closest friends in just a moment. But first, in her own words, the story of her remarkable campaign for justice. Vicky Phelan had a smear test in 2011 under the National Cervical Check Screening Programme. It was wrongly reported as clear. There are no winners here today. I am terminally ill and there is no cure for my cancer. My settlement will mostly be spent on buying me time and on paying for clinical trials to keep me alive and to allow me to spend more time with my children. Mistakes can and do happen, but the conduct of cervical check and the HSE in my case is unforgivable. I just thought, what the hell, you know, straight away I was in kind of, you know, this kind of mode, why, why was this hidden from me? And then I was looking at it and reading it over and over again and at the bottom of the page I saw it was page two of two. And I said to ma'am, I said, Jesus, where's page one, you know? I just felt angry, you know, um, and I'm the type of person, you know, I'm a Scorpio, don't cross me, you know, you'll pay for it. Um, so I just thought, I'm going to get to the bottom of this if it kills me, basically, you know. But I was adamant, I was absolutely adamant um, that I was never going to sign a confidentiality clause. Oh my God, when I saw the number this morning, I really now, I could have dropped. We knew that there were at least 14 other women and we kind of surmised that there were more than that, to be honest, but I really didn't think there would be more than 40 or 50, you know, nationally. Often people ask me, you know, you're terminally ill, you know, how are you not crying and sad? And, well, I can only explain it that I have this new sense of purpose and I want to leave a legacy behind. I have a daughter who's coming uh, on board, she's nearly 13, and the reason I'm doing this is because I don't want her to have to go through what I'm going through. I'm doing this for her and for the women of Ireland. Ciaan Corla, as Taoiseach on behalf of the state, I apologise to the women and their loved ones who suffered from a litany of failures in how cervical screening in our country operated over many years. And I do think the apology was more than we expected and we're very happy with it. Um, I do think, you know, there were 
uh, far fewer politicians in the in the chamber than we would have liked, to be honest. Um, I think there could have been a few more there. Everybody has a wife, a mother, or a daughter. Good afternoon, Vicky. Hi, Ray. How are you? Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm still smiling like a Cheshire cast today. Your book, Overcoming, won the RTE Radio 1 Listener's Choice Award in the Unpost Irish Book Awards last night. Had you any inkling? No, I said, you know, I mean, I was just delighted to be shortlisted. I mean, I did this book for two reasons. One was for my kids, because when we started this whole process last year, I still didn't know if I'd be here, to be honest, to, to get to the end of it. My dying wish will be for the women of Ireland that because of what has happened in this past year, maybe my last year on earth, they will be able to trust that their lives are in safe hands, that they will be minded and cared for at their most vulnerable, and that everything will be done to give them the lives they deserve, the time they deserve with the people they love and who love them and who need them in the world. There will be others who will continue this fight without me when I'm gone, because we are all in this together at the end of the day. We all come from that same place, from a mother's womb. This is everybody's story. Then Brian Dobson spoke to cancer campaigner and good friend of Vicky Phelan, John Wall. John, thank you for taking our call this afternoon and our condolences and sympathies to you and all Vicky's very many friends around the country who are digesting this news today. What are, what are your thoughts? Thank you, Brian. Um, my thoughts are today that uh, Ireland has lost an amazing person, uh, a mother, a wife, a friend. And I think it's important that we remember Vicky, the person today, and uh, Fergal has eloquently pointed out, you know, her legacy and all that uh, she has and continues to do. Her voice will reverberate uh, for many, many, many years to come. But there's also the person that we knew and that we loved. And there's a huge void in all our lives today as a result of the uh, untimely and tragic passing of uh, Vicky. She's an, an extraordinary uh, human being that fought beyond belief uh, to live to, to be the best mother that she can be, to be the best wife that she can be, to be an amazing friend. And that she certainly was to me. Um, we talked, we laughed, we cried, we shared. We shared life together, our life experiences together. And it's, uh, it's something that I'll treasure for the rest of my days. And uh, I'm very, very fortunate and privileged to have uh, had Vicky Phelan in my life and to call her my best friend. You've been with, with Vicky's family this morning, John, I understand, with Jim, Amelia and Dara. They are, I'm sure, just uh, inconsolable at this moment. You know, her strength her strength and resilience um, when, when needed most is transferred to her family today. They're just, how, how they deal with their, their loss is, um, to me, I just don't understand where they're getting, well, I do know where they're getting their strength from. It's from Vicky herself. Um, it's immeasurable, the grief, when you lose a mother, when you lose a wife at such a young age and so tragically. It's very difficult, obviously, to come to terms with that. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of support there and uh, we're all there, uh, family and friends, for Jim, for Amelia and for Dara. And Amelia and Dara are two uh, amazing, amazing uh, kids. That uh, resilience beyond belief is what they're showing. And, uh, you know, strength beyond recognition, uh, talking to Jim this morning. And uh, a few moments ago, um, I'm just, I, he reminds me of Vicky and the strength that she has shown throughout her own battle. And now the strength that the, the family needs to get through the next few days and, and few weeks. Obviously, there's a, a lot of uh, national interest for very good reason. 
in Vicky's passing and the outpouring of goodwill and uh, emotion uh, is not gone unnoticed by the, the, the family as well. And through those years that she was campaigning and fighting her own health battle, John, what, what was it, do you think, that sustained her, kept, kept her good humour, um, kept her uh, able to battle on? It's a million dollar question, Brian. Uh, if, we could, if we could bottle what she had, uh, the world would be uh, an amazing place. I could never put my finger on exactly what it was, uh, even through the, the most difficult of times. She showed, um, she showed uh, her true character. She had uh, an incredible sense of humour and uh, she was always willing to display it at the most, what I thought at times were the most inopportune moments. But, you know, on reflection, they weren't inopportune at all. Uh, that, was, that was Vicky Phelan. It's the, the, the way she dealt with the, the life that, uh, that she was given. And that's, you know, she, she had a, a very, there was a lot, of, a lot of tragedies in her life and um, very, very difficult to deal with over the years. She's had um, well-documented mm-hmm. issues that she's had to deal with. But she did. She dealt with them and she just got on to the next chapter and she dealt with that and got on to the next chapter. But in so doing, she helped countless thousands of other people and that is the legacy that, that, she, that she leaves. The, the system that she has changed, the way that patients are dealt with, the way that patients deal with the system. She has changed Ireland and changed Ireland for the good. And she's not finished yet. Her legacy, as I said, will live on for many, many, many years. And she has influenced each and every one of us to the core. And um, I'll never forget her. I will never, ever forget the, the friendship that we had and that... Uh, I'm privileged to have enjoyed. That's John Wall on the News at One with Brian Dobson. And on the live line, one week on from the broadcast of the documentary on One about abuse in spirit and run schools, Blackrock Boys, still more calls to Joe with people willing to share their stories. On last Monday's documentary, One uh, member of the Holy Spirit Order was named uh, publicly. His name was Tom O'Bourne. Since then, on on Liveline, we've had uh, I think six more, and there's more today. Uh, Father Aloysius Flood, Father Senan Corey, Father Jared Hannan, and by the way, they've been named by a number. They three of them. Uh, one of our callers, they abused him, but they also individually um, uh, abused others as well. And then it emerged that Hannon, Jared Hannon, had also uh, abused Mark and David Ryan. Then we had Edward Baylor. We're still looking for more information on him um, because, as you may know, he was charged with abducting a child, taking him to a hotel in North Dublin and abusing the child. And he got two years. We don't even know if he ever went to prison. Um, Sen and Corrie got mentioned again. Uh, Flood got mentioned again, including by his niece, who uh, told us that he abused her from the age of five. And she thought, as she said, Michelle Flood is her name, she thought she would carry his name to the grave. Uh, Such was the hurt and shame that he visited uh, on her and her family. And she was glad that he had been publicly named and that's why she went public to uh, identify, she went to the guards as well, by the way, identify her her uncle, 
uh, Allo Flood, as he's uh, known as within Blackrock circles, as being uh, one of her abusers. Then on Friday, it was Father uh, Gus Griffin, that was the sixth uh, priest. Uh, he was in, involved in Kimmage Manor and one of his victims spoke to us the previous day. And people might remember that horrific story when Gus Griffin decided to teach this 12-year-old boy how to play croquet. And that's when the abuse uh, started. Arthur Carraher is another name that's uh, been released over the weekend and we will hear information on him from Canada shortly. Father Henry Maloney, his name has been around for a while but none of his uh, victims have spoken uh, until now. Um, And uh, the name of his victim, he's from Sierra Leone where uh, Archbishop uh, Brosnahan, Joseph Brosnahan, people might remember that name, um, Thomas Joseph Brosnahan uh, from Whitegate. He was uh, the Archbishop uh, in the city of Bow in West Africa. And he set up, he'd been educated, by the way, in Rockwell College by the Holy Ghost Fathers. He'd been educated, by the way, in Black Rock College by the Holy Ghost Father. And he became a Holy Ghost Father. And he decided that the Holy Ghost Fathers would set up a school in West Africa, a private school. It's called Christ the King College. It's regarded as one of the most, now this will ring a bell, just replace uh, the word Ireland for Sierra Leone. Regards one of the most influential schools in West Africa due to its tradition of hardworking teachers and student leadership. Academically, it's considered the leading secondary school in public examinations. Um, and they list the examinations. Um, and uh, the school, uh, Christ the King School, also has international students from Liberia, uh, Gambia, Ghana and Nigeria. And we'll be hearing from an international student from America who went to Blackrock College uh, in uh, a few minutes. But let me begin with uh, Elvis Kute. Elvis, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. And Elvis, tell us, how did you... Uh, what age were you when you first came uh, in contact with Father Henry Maloney in your school in Sierra Leone? I must have been between um, 11 and 13 years old. Okay. And can you tell us, please, Elvis, what happened? Well, um, I I got admitted to Christ the King College yeah. and um, I went for the admission interview. Yeah. Now, Father Moloney interviewed me, yeah. and he being a left-handed person, and I was also left-handed, mm-hmm. he allowed me to sit on his lap, and then uh, we both uh, wrote, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Mm-hmm. So that was the extent of my interview, and then um, I got admitted to the school, and mm-hmm. then the first time uh, commenced in the September now, it happened that Father Moloney was my class teacher for uh, mathematics and religious education. Okay. And at the end of the first term, we had uh, our exam, our first term exam. Now, Father Moloney uh, was living just next door to the boarding, boarding home. Okay. So one evening, I went up to his flat just to inquire about my, my maths after yeah. the exam. Yeah, and then uh, when I went up there, he started. He allowed me to touch him. He touched me, and and then he took me to bed. Mm. But there was no penetration, and he, he just you, you were you were Elvis. You were eleven years of age. Between eleven and I must have been eleven between eleven and thirteen okay. when I went to Form One. Okay. 
and Maloney abused you on that day. Did he abuse you again? Yes. Uh, I didn't quite understand what was happening because I was shocked and I did, and that was my first experience. So a few days later, I went back to inquire because uh, another, 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 uh, another of my greats, and then the same thing happened. And then I knew that something was not right, but I, couldn't, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know whether it was sexual okay. abuse. Because that is that is not something common when I was growing up in Sierra Leone. Yeah, and, and that was my very first time leaving home. You know, so I didn't know. But I did discuss it or I did I did uh, uh, inform one or two of my friends. Mm-hmm. So from then onwards I would always avoid him except when he was in class. But there was no longer any uh, personal contact between myself and him. That's Elvis Kute there. Then Joe spoke to Pat. I was, was in Rockwood College, there back in the, um, the mid, mid-80s. Okay, and what age were you? Um, I think I was about 16 or 17 at the time. Okay. And uh, Elvis there detailed the circumstances. Um, Maloney was his maths teacher. He did an exam and... Um, I don't know whether Peter got the, people got the listeners got the and, and religious education. Religious, teacher. yeah. And then he said to Elvis, "Come up to my room. I'll give you your math results." And that's when he abused him. How did, how how did your abuser engage you, Pat? Um, well, Joe, the the guardy actually came over one day to to question me about an incident that happened outside the school, um, which I had nothing to do with. Okay, and. The, the head priest at the time, um, he kind of copped onto that, and um, it kind of went from there. Really, that he taught me that he could get me expelled from the school, and yeah. and that was really the start of it. Kind of being blackmailed into stuff. So, the, your abuser was your abuser aware of the guardie coming to the school on this completely different event. Yeah, he called me into the office, telling me that the guardy were there. And um, what did he did he know why they had called? Um, I would presume so. I'm not 100 percent sure. I presume so. Okay. Yeah. And how did that go from the guardy doing a routine inquiry, which it turned out had nothing to do with you? How did that go from that innocent enough inquiry to you being abused? Well, back then, Joe, he would actually call you into his office. Yeah. Uh, slash um, living quarters there and um, he would you know start from there and another way that he used to start as well usually at lunchtime when everyone was having their lunch and he'd give out the mail Yeah. and he wouldn't have anything say from myself or whatever and he'd say oh I have a letter for you in the office come and get it and that's one way he went about it you know and what when you got to the office that's when he abused you yeah yeah so they always um, they always find an opening. They always find a vulnerability. In your case, he he obviously exaggerated what the guardy were there for and said, "If you if you don't don't put words in your mouth either, but if you don't keep our secret, which we've heard so many times, um, I'll what get the guards onto you." No, that he would actually expel me from the school. Oh, expel you from the school? Yeah. And what did he seem to think because the guards had? had called that would give him a reason yeah at the time Joe and uh, but another thing that would happen too then he, he decided that I should learn how to drive okay and he would bring me out in his car out of the college then as well and kind of do the same thing abuse you in the, in the car yeah god god 
and Pat. And even, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and even even this guy was so bold there, like we were. In one of our years there, we were sleeping in the dorm over outside, not thirty six, forty people inside in it. Yeah. And at night time, when the lights would go off, he'd actually you'd hear him creeping in the door, and sometimes he would go from bed to bed and put his hands up under the covers there, and you know, touching up people under the covers there. And even though the room was full, you could hear people telling them to go away and all this kind of yeah. thing. You know. My God. He was just brazen. Brazen isn't the words. Now, how how long did you spend in Rockwell, Pat? I was there for two years, Joe. And was that, were you due to be two years or you left early or? No, it was two years was the time, yeah. Yeah, okay. Now, did he try and contact you afterwards? Yeah, um, I moved to Cork afterwards, Joe, and um, he was turned up on my doorstep on numerous occasions and just arrived at the door or whatever, you know, and... Mm -hmm. um, trying to let himself in or whatever, like, and just, he was kind of trying on the same things all the time then afterwards. He basically called to your, what, to your workplace or your home to abuse you? Yeah, yeah, Joe. Now, did you tell anyone or do you think the school knew about this or what's your I, own I sense, think, Pat? Well, um, I think some people, most people would actually know, well, all the students actually knew. There was no question about it, like, the you know, they, um, it was just commonplace there back then, you know, but as I said, Joe, everyone was, um, you know, everyone was afraid of the church and the priest back yeah, then, so yeah. nobody wanted to do anything. And, you know, I believed it was a couple of our kind of dorm supervisors and stuff. I believe everybody knew about it, you know. Yeah. And how did it affect you? Well, Odd enough over the years, Joe, to kind of come and go at you all the yeah, time. And, yeah. and and then just a couple of years before COVID there, I was watching uh, someone on the Late Late Show one night there when they were talking about institutional abuse. And, yeah. you know, it was kind of playing at my mind then. So I decided that I was going to go to the Gardaí and make a complaint a few years back. And um, But when, when I made the complaint to the Gardaí, mm -hmm. uh, I only discovered that at the time then that the, the priest in question was actually, who was after dying in the meantime. Yeah. So, but um, I put it up on our um, school Facebook page as well and okay. loads of other people came forward and contacted well me. Well done, well done. A lot of those made uh, statements to Gardy as well on the incident. Okay. That's Pat on the live line and if you need it, there's support available from many phone lines like the Rape Crisis and 1 in 4. You can find these and more at rte.ie slash helplines. And on the Ray Darcy Show, remembering Vicky Phelan. Now, as you would imagine, we're very sad in here today. Um, Vicky Phelan was a regular um, on our programme and uh, she first appeared in February of 2018. And the reason she appeared uh, then was that her brother Johnny had sent us in a long email uh, telling us how brilliant his big sister was and the fact that she'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And she had researched her plight and was looking to travel to America to get cutting edge treatment uh, for her cancer. Um, what we didn't know when we spoke to Vicky Phelan on that afternoon back in February of 2018 was that she was taking a court case um, against the people who did her original smear test and the HSE. And of course, in April of that year, 
The results of that court case became public. Vicky Phelan arrived out on the steps of the High Court and she delivered that speech. Uh, and it's been played a couple of times already. We'll play it one more time. There are no winners here today. I am terminally ill and there is no cure for my cancer. My settlement will mostly be spent on buying me time and on paying for clinical trials to keep me alive and to allow me to spend more time with my children. If I die, and I truly hope that won't be the case, the money will provide for my family. The women of Ireland can no longer put their trust in the cervical check programme. Mistakes can and do happen, but the conduct of cervical check and the HSE in my case, and in the case of at least 10 other women who we know about, is unforgivable. To know for almost three years that a mistake had been made and that I was misdiagnosed is bad enough, but to keep that information from me until I became terminally ill and to drag me through the courts to fight for my right to the truth is an appalling breach of trust. And I truly hope that some good will come of this case and that there will be an investigation into the cervical check programme as a result of this. And there were. And the name of Vicky Phelan uh, became known all over the country and indeed all over the world. As Fergal Bowers has been reminding us, she was listed as one of the uh, the BBC's top 100 women, whatever that means, in 2018. Uh, but they recognised what she had done in this country uh, for the plight of women and taking on the system. Uh, I suppose speaking truth to power. And she was never phased by that, never phased. And she had this irreverence about her, which allowed her, I think, uh, to be who she was and to speak truth to power. Uh, I heard somebody say that Mary Robinson described her once as a, a sophisticated bad girl. Uh, she was an agitator and a disruptor. And at a time in her life when she should have gone home, pulled the curtains and spent it with her husband Jim and her children, Amelia and Dara, uh, she was out fighting, fighting and fighting and shouting and shouting loud and making sure that she was heard. And she was visible. And she knew, she knew the power of what she had. Here was a woman with terminal cancer, which didn't have to be. That's the thing. The whole thing was avoidable. She knew that and then she let us know that. And it was because the system had failed her and other women. And she, she, she was just, uh, just amazing. And, and all the words you think about, you know, like I'm, I was trying to list the words. Impressive. She was compassionate. She was beautiful. She was funny. She was determined. She was very, very capable, you see. Uh, and it is as if she arrived ready to do what she has done for the last four and a half years. Uh, she was selfless. She was brave, courageous. Um, and she wouldn't be gagged. That was the thing. And she told us that on the TV show. The first thing they wanted her to do was to sign an NDA. Uh, they wanted her to keep her mouth shut. But Vicky Feely knew that she couldn't do that that if she was to implement change, if she was to affect change, that she had to tell her story. So there was no way she was going to be gagged. And Ray went back to the archive and a conversation with Vicky about facing death. I mean, sometimes I think about it. Obviously, if I'm feeling really unwell, it, be it becomes more and more, you know, an issue for me. And I start really worrying, you know, and mm -hmm. I find I find night times hard if I'm not well. And, I, you know, I think that... You know, maybe, maybe you know, this this might be the beginning of the end. You know, say just before Christmas, I was quite sick. I was very sick for a couple of weeks before Christmas, and I really 
was worried at that point. And it was the first time in a while that I'd been worried that I thought, oh God, maybe this is it, you know. Uh, and as far as kind of all my, you know, affairs, I, I mean, I have everything in order. I'm one of those organised people. I mean, down to like, I, I'm, and I'm a control freak, Ray. So like <laughs> one of the other things I have is I pr- pretty much have my funeral planned, have you, you know. <laughs> I know. And I want it to be a celebration. I don't want it to be this mournful, you know, awful, you know, I want it to be a, you know, a celebrate, and that's what, often, you know, some, some cultures do that, don't they? A kind yes. of celebration yes. of your life. So, you know, we all know this is coming at some stage, so I'd rather it be a celebration than this awful, sad day. So for me, music is a big thing. So yeah, I have, I have it planned to a T. Oh, um, but, you know, but at the same time, Ray, you know, one of the things I think that a lot of people don't get to do before they die sometimes is, you know, particularly I often find with, with, with cancer, and a lot of cancer patients will tell you the same thing, particularly, you know, people like me who, who are terminal and kind of, you know, you know, it's common. Um, you get the time to say things to people that sometimes we don't do, you know. So mm. we're very bad in Ireland at kind of telling people how much we love them or mm. maybe, you know, you might have fallen out with a friend and, you know, over something stupid. So I've repaired all of those bridges. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah well, you know, because you know what? <laughs> yeah, know. do you know what I mean? But it shouldn't be that we have to wait know, till know, something like this happens yeah, to know, do those I things. Know, I know. And it's the same thing with my parents. You know, we wouldn't have been great in my family at kind of, you know, saying I love you or giving hugs. Yeah. Now we're all doing it. You know what mm. I mean? And that, that was driven by me, I suppose, and yeah. my cancer and my situation. And, you know, I have no regrets, Ray. Everybody who I love knows I love them. I've done everything I can. I've 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 squeezed every last drop <laughs> out of life. You know, and that yeah. and that's it. And I think it's so important because a lot of us don't do that, you know. Yeah. And I certainly wouldn't have before I got cancer. You know, I think we're all so caught up in, you know, jobs and promotions and, you know, being a certain size and you know do you know what I mean? Yeah. That, no, no, uh, I know. You know I, 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 think, I no longer care about those yeah. things. You know, I think everybody, I, you know, everybody listening knows, but we don't act on it. That's the thing. We no, know what we should no, be doing. No, we don't until yeah, yeah. we're pushed into a corner yeah. like I have been. Yeah. But there's a great freedom in that sometimes because it really frees you up to just enjoy life, yeah. you know. And it's the simple things, honestly. You know, it's the simple things that make make me happy because, you know, when you're not in pain, everything is a bonus, you know. Yeah. Beautiful soul. That's Vicky Phelan from the Ray Darcy Show. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time. <laughs> <laughs>